See, for him, if fewer and fewer people that have everything make for more and more people with nothing, you can have a revolution. The nothing people have every reason to destroy the something people because the nothing people have nothing to lose. Hello and welcome to Why Are We Talking About Rabbits? That's this podcast. It's aimed at folks who like Neo, maybe in the Matrix. You know, he felt a deep sense of dislocation. On this pod, we talk about heavy things, but we do it lightly. We'll use theology and history, philosophy, and years of deeply immersive experiences in foreign cultures to figure out what the heck is going on, because it's going on, man. Our pod, well, it goes beyond these rhetorical rabbits, these things produced in the media, they go Instead, we try to take a, a little bit of a longer look and examine local cultural phenomenon or contemporary phenomenon and try to see how it looks from an old world perspective and also a new world perspective. Join me, John Hears, and our team of First Things Foundation field workers as we wonder aloud, why are we talking about rabbits? This is episode 20. This is What's an Economy Anyway? What is an economy? An economic thing that people call the economy. What is it? Well, I think simply said, the old Greek language tells us that the word economia means household management. Bet you didn't know that. Oikos which is translated as household, is the first part of the word, and nemen, which is translated as management and or dispensation, make up the word economia or economy, and it means household management. But what does that mean, really? Is it what it looks like? I thought the economy was this thing that was happening all around me. Like every day, like some sort of news monster with massive tentacles that reach into every aspect of my life and drive me forward toward loans and workplace raises and efficiency and banks and CNBC. That one guy who screams on that one show. And all the things that sort of help me to become a good person and make success happen in my life. I thought the economy was like making me the man. Like, I have to participate in it and then demonstrate success. I thought the economy was the thing that bankers control or, or like, the reason I have a house is because of the economy, right? And like a 501k or a 401k. We're a 501c3. Those aren't the same. I don't think I have a 401k. Look, we need a smart person to rescue me from this confusion of household management as the economy. What? Like sweeping? I don't Let's clean up this mess. Let's go to the American Economic Association. They publish a journal, the Journal of Economic Perspectives. In one of their articles, check the pod notes, 
a really sharp cookie named Dotan Leshem. I mean, you're talking published by Cambridge, Columbia, European Journal of Economic Thought, all kinds of stuff. Dotan, our pal for this pod, he writes that in ancient Greek, right, and in contemporary economic theory, oconomia has everything to do with how human beings manage life. Economia is about management. And he, he writes, quote, it's about a relationship between ends and means. He then proceeds, he goes on and says, in ancient economic theory, an action is considered economically rational. I want you to hear good there. An economic action is considered rational or good only when taken towards a praiseworthy end. Whoa. In economics, he writes, in the ancient understanding, things are only good in the economic world when they aim at a praiseworthy end, something good in and of itself. So for us moderns, here's the first question I think of. Hmm. Economics is when someone tries to do something good. So is money itself a praiseworthy end? I want my money to make more money. Is that a praiseworthy end? Is making money for the sake of more money a praiseworthy end? And if it's not, is making more money even a part of the economia? Hmm. No, it's not. That's the official answer. It's not. This is rich stuff, man. Yeah, I think what I'm trying to say here is that going all the way back, the economy was just about doing good. Yeah. Mr. Lesham, this very smart economist, has recognized something that this pod recognizes again and again and again, and no matter how much we screw it up, it keeps popping up, and that's this. Old world systems, old world culture, it always aims to make people into something more than their junk, than their stuff, more than their brain waves, more than their material reality. The stuff old world systems aim at isn't stuff. And that's what Lesham's saying about the word economia and the nature of economics in the old world. The aim of the old world is always some sort of untouchable, unsmellable, untastable, immaterial good. Can we just say spirit right there? A spiritual good? I mean, I can't taste, I don't know, humility. I can't touch it. Spiritual goods, things seen or things unseen, but yet real. Is that what the economy is doing? It's trying to get us to create really good spiritual ends? No, not the economy we know. Economy in the old world is household management in pursuit of a praiseworthy end. It's not Wall Street. It's not your 401k. It's not the housing market. Wall Street is not the economy unless you believe, and boy, this would be a stretch that Wall Street p- 
people do Wall Street things so they can create spiritual good in your life. What? Please don't believe that. Right? Please. It would be sad if you believed that because it's not true. Now, in the old world, economy is just about you choosing to manage your household in a spiritually praiseworthy way. Managing toward the intangible good. Now, it sounds like I think that's really good. Yeah, maybe, but what it is is simple. The economy, the economy is you managing in a way that your family and your people and your, I don't know, significant others, they do good. And that's what economy is. Or should I say was? That's what it was. That's the old world. Before getting into the new world perspective of what the economy is now, let's take a look at how the old world economia can be influenced and in fact changed by the new world economia. Let's go to Africa. We do that some, from time to time. In the village I lived in, I was a Peace Corps volunteer. This is the 1990s. The village, a place called Sindala, well, in that village of about 400 people, people owned property. They did. In that village, people produced product. They did. In that village, Sindala, people bought and sold in free markets. Or at least they seemed free. Everybody brought their stuff and plopped it down and they started selling. People did economic things we Westerners recognize, many of which we think of as modern. But they did it all within about a 40-kilometer range of one another. Well, except for one product. And that's why I'm telling you the story. Right? And this one product stands out in my mind. That product? Mangoes. In Sindala, the water and the soil and the heat and the humidity, it all collided to make some really, really delicious mangoes. The problem was the mangoes were on the other side of a large merry-go, a, a river, a, a stream, really. Trucks couldn't pass in the rainy season. Horses couldn't pass. People couldn't pass. So they built a bridge out of wood. They cut down thousands and thousands of trees over any given five-year period to make that bridge work. It was crazy hard to do this. When I got to the village right away, I'm the foreigner, they asked me, hey, hey, can you build a metal bridge? Concrete would even be better. Can you hook us up? We want to get our mangoes to market. And what they kept telling me was the wood we chopped down is creating a problem. The government is fining us for breaking all types of desertification laws, laws about the environment. Can you help us, Mr. Foreign Person, to get something in here that is permanent so we can move our mangoes and sell them in? And here's the key to the story, France. We're moving our mangoes to France. Whoa, that was interesting. Because this village without running water or electricity had decided to send their tasty, delicious mangoes to France. That feels like an economy all of a sudden, doesn't it? 
And that's how it felt to me. It felt suddenly important. And I said, oh, no, I will not help you with that bridge. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, because I'm a political science major and I can't add. And um, calculus, well, yeah, that's not happening. And uh, basically, that just scares me. So let's talk about other stuff. Like wells. Yeah. Wells that you don't need because... Well, the water table is about a meter down, and any moron, including even me, the foreigner, could dig a meter deep. So, yeah, I wanted to do wells and kept doing wells while they wanted a bridge, and they pressed me, and they pressed me, and I wouldn't, and I wouldn't, and then, well, we did it. I got a young guy to come out and design the bridge, and then I got some money from USAID, the United States Agency for International Development, and then I got lots of stuff. We built the bridge. And those guys worked like madmen for six months. No electricity, no earth movers, no pay. <laughs> Just wheelbarrows, shovels, lots of super crazy ideas because those ideas helped us to figure out how to elevate this 20-ton massive slab of cement. And we did it. But none of that's really the point. The point is the bridge, which stands there today, was moving mangoes to France. My village was being brought into, for maybe the first time, a modern economy. An economy that had nothing really to do with household management and nothing to do with creating a spiritually satisfying end it had everything to do, however, with multinational banking and finance. Sindhali, you see, was being introduced to the concept of banking, big banking, and big multinational trade. In short, the chief there was being introduced to capitalism. They were being introduced to a way to get money. Now remember, they can use the money for something satisfying, but the point I'm trying to make is that the system itself is not interested in what's satisfying to you. It's interested in money and creating more of it. Yeah. Capitalism is not the economy. It's just an ism. It's a way of thinking. It's, a, it's an ism that's really can be thought of in the same category as, say, Hinduism or agnosticism or Jesusism or individualism or nativism or, and here's the interesting part, communism. Yes, capitalism and communism are both just systems of belief. They're ligs, ideas that hold a worldview together, ligaments in a religion, right? A religion, a worldview held together by certain principles. And both are new world belief systems, capitalism and communism. Both are religions born out of the Enlightenment, each designed to manage money. Not households, money. Not souls, money. Not even people, money. Isn't that interesting? If you think about it, they're just... Like there's priests of capitalism trying to convince you of a way of life. 
Each is a materialistic ism aimed at creating the greatest material satisfaction for the greatest number of people. Neither system is even a little concerned about your family's ends, about your deepest joys, about your loves and truths. They are only concerned with your family's means. Your means is their business. Literally. Capitalism is not the economia. Communism is not the economia. They are new world systems put in place by philosophers who, for the most part, were just toying around with cool new positivistic ideas. What? what, what what's that? Positivism? Yeah, we got to introduce this idea. Positivism is the philosophical idea, also born right out of the Enlightenment, that says all true and genuine knowledge is exclusively derived from stuff, from natural phenomena, stuff, material. And the keeper and the king of the stuff, according to positivistic theory, is us humans. People, us, if we do it right, according to reason, this is all the enlightenment, we can manipulate stuff to make ourselves happy. And positivism is related to utopianism, another new world philosophy. Utopianism also includes this notion that humans are good, and if we use our rational systems, we can save ourselves from suffering. Economic systems are included in the save us from suffering devices. So what am I getting at? Capitalism and communism are two sides of the same new world economic coin. Both aim at the same thing. They both aim to move stuff around in the best way. And money is their stuff. Each system claims to move stuff in the newest, bestest way. But here's the key. It's really important. This is the key. Here's the key. I think this sums up, I think, what all of our guys see overseas. It's really important. Both capitalism and communism are philosophies, ways of thinking, and ultimately ways of being. And both argue, this is the principle at play for both, that material prosperity is the most essential variable for measuring human flourishing. I'll repeat that. Both have as at their principle, the principle of capitalism, the principle of communism, both have at the core that the most essential variable for measuring human happiness is material prosperity. So, Communists argue that private property is not a part of the right stuff basket of happiness, and capitalists argue that private property is essential to having a really hearty happiness basket. From the old world perspective, material things can't bring happiness. The new world economic assumption that people are happier when they have more stuff, well, that's not an old world principle. Stuff is not a praiseworthy end. Stuff might be a part of a praiseworthy end, but no praiseworthy end is simply more stuff. For the old world, almost across the board, more stuff was never the goal of the economy, and now you get why the old world was always, well, what we think of as poor. 
And for modern people, poor has become synonymous with backward. Very interesting. I mean, why didn't feudal serfs have Nike? Nike shoes. And why did they wear wool in the summer? It's really itchy. Well, the praiseworthy end wasn't to fix all that up. There's a different praiseworthy end, right? Even though itchy wool kind of sucks. The key principle at play back in the day before the Enlightenment was not moving money. It was not private property. It was religious. And that's why you see some systems using private property as a tool, while others did not. Private property was an option, but it wasn't a principle. But the idea pushed by modern philosophies that private property was not allowed in the old world, that's just a bunch of hooey. Private property was, well, just obvious. Every society from the Sumerians to the Romans to the Guptas in India to the British before the American Revolution, all of them believed in some sort of private property and even at times cherished it, even for the commoner. All of them had markets where people traded goods, quote, freely. It's just a myth that capitalism depends on private property and free markets. No. If you really look at it, capitalism, in fact, is the enemy of private property. Well, getting crazy. All right, let me try to explain. I'm going to do it using an old podcast friend of mine, a guy named Clark Carlton, a professor at Tennessee Tech University. He does a lot of good stuff on Ancient Faith Radio. Among other things that he points out is that capitalism, as understood by the earliest philosophers of the Enlightenment, the positivists, and now today by folks like Ayn Rand and Milton Friedman, capitalism for them is a libertarian, utopian fantasy. Rand and Friedman especially, and others from the last really 100 years, they teach that free markets make people free. But if truth be told, there is no such thing as a free market. That's just a myth. See, if you go back to Hume, David Hume, the philosopher, and Adam Smith, the guy who actually coined the term capitalism and wealth of nations, Their writings teach us that the modern way to wealth, and remember, that's a major major way to measure health in the new world is wealth. Well, the modern way to wealth is the way of trade. But as Carlton points out, the way to trade, and you could see this in my Malian story with my Malian friends right in the village, the way to trade is monetization, money. My friends couldn't trade their mangoes to the French for cows. They needed money. They needed money to go far, money to go big. They needed money as a means, right, to make the big trade. And so, therefore, they needed banks to handle their big wallet. And if you have banks, you must surely have interest. Hmm. Now, this is a whole nother podcast, but notice that charging interest, usury is what it was called, 
It was outlawed nearly across the board before the Enlightenment. Every society had some sort of regulation against it. Interest didn't play a big part in creating good ends for household managers. It wasn't a praiseworthy end. Oh, look at all the money I have because I lent at high rates to that person. That's not a praiseworthy end. So my Mali and friends were taking a road that was going to lead them to having to use money, which meant having to participate in a banking system that participated deeply in the charging of interest rates and really high ones. So anyway, if trade demands monetization, then you must have two things. See, watch how this happens. If you're going to have money, you need a banking system, preferably centralized. And if you're going to have money so you can do all this trade, you need to have a way to secure the money to back it up. And that's the government. Once these two things are in place, those with political power, they're going to muddy the, quote, free market. History shows us this. Over and over again, the market gets muddied up by politicians, keepers of power, who employ useful capitalists in the service of positive change. Think Rockefeller, Carnegie, Bezos, Gates. How do politicians get these sweet, kind men to do, quote, good things for society? They do this by passing laws about taxes. They regulate the traders. They regulate the products. They move levers so that some people get into the game and others don't. I mean, check this out. The federal and state governments of the Gilded Age gave Rockefeller, Jay Gould, Cornelius Vanderbilt, and other folks like them Cash and land grants totaling more than $45 billion in today's terms. Gave, right? That's between 1865 and 1900. Federal and state governments gave these same folks more than 185 million acres of public land. Let me repeat that. Governments gave these Gilded Age capitalists more than 185 million acres of public land gave. Do you think Amazon gets land in good tax deals? I mean, really? This is capitalism, and it's not nefarious. It's not dirty and dark. You shan't die from it. It's just how it works. There are no free markets. There never will be. It's not a thing. We see the earliest forms of modern-day capitalism in the choices made by imperial governments like England. England and France and all the big European players in the 18th and 19th century, they created incentives for their own corporations. Right? And those corporations' job? Get to the new world. Harvest new world products. And get them back here. For sale. This system, which most know as colonialism, is actually, in its earliest forms, capitalism, but it's also known to us in history as mercantilism. They're all part of the emerging idea of capitalism. But does any of that sound like household management? Economia? 
Yeah, not so much. Why does this matter on this pod? Well, the folks deeply invested in the new capitalism of the 18th and 19th centuries were the New World Deists and deep believers in utopia, folks like Francis Bacon. There he is again, if you've listened to this pod. Ben Franklin, Al Hamilton, that guy, Voltaire, David Hume, Adam Smith, the one who coined the term capitalism, and who, by the way, knew Hume and Voltaire personally. All of these folks, these men, they're the architects of the New World thinking. They are also, by chance, the architects of the New World economy. And we call that economy capitalism. What about Marx? Well, writing 50 years after Adam Smith, Marx also praised capitalism. He did. Go read the manifesto. Marx praised capitalism. He wanted to eliminate private property, but capitalism was the the necessary enzyme to do this. Wait, Marx needed capitalism to get rid of private property? Correct. It's important. But how would this work? Well, capitalism was necessary because it concentrated property. It lumped up assets, like houses and cars, and and it coagulated cash. It made these things sort of... Hmm, How should we say? Come together in the pockets of certain individuals. That's what capitalism does. And in turn, it accentuated disparity. At least that's Marx's theory. Without this ism called capitalism, Marx knew there could never be an underclass large enough and willing enough to risk death in favor of revolution. He worried the middle class would get in the way of an underclass revolution. So he thought capitalism would actually squeeze out a middle class eventually. That's his bet. See, for him, if fewer and fewer people that have everything make for more and more people with nothing, you can have a revolution. The nothing people have every reason to destroy the something people because the nothing people have nothing to lose. For Marx... Capitalism is the materialist yin to the communist yen. But be aware of something. I am not arguing for communism, even a little, not even close. Repeat, this is not an argument for Marxism. And I'm not arguing for or against capitalism either. I'm not arguing for anything. What I'm trying to do is share something our work has taught us in the field where very few of us ever get to go see like real old world pre-enlightenment cultures at work. What we find out there is that capitalism and communism are just ligs, they're religions, they're ideas, they're ligaments that hold together a set of ideas and create a worldview. They are religions around which human beings gather to worship. Worship looks like buying stuff. Capitalism and Marxism are two sides of the same materialistic and new world coin. Capitalism is the ballerino to the Marxist ballerina. Capitalism and communism are not the economy. 
They are philosophies. They aren't interested in your economia. They aren't interested in your family's, right, praiseworthy ends. They're little religions to which people adhere some more fully than others. In the old world, the dominant league was the father, you see, the parent, whether in heaven or on earth. And in that way, the economia was managing one's household to please the father, to offer to the head, the father or the mother, right? Various societies had mothers as heads, but for most societies, it was to offer to the head, the father in heaven, the body as a living sacrifice, as the praiseworthy end. Capitalism and communism are not concerned with praiseworthy ends. They're just not, right? They're not concerned with non-material realities like hope, redemption, joy. They are concerned with moving money around because each, communism and capitalism, has the same principle. And that principle is that stuff creates happiness for fleshy, temporal humans. We just have to decide if more material prosperity actually creates more human happiness. I know that's what our leaders think. It's what they sell us daily on the campaign trail. More material prosperity will make you more and more happy. But is it actually true? Maybe that's our next pod. So... Until then, Shenis Gagimajis. That is Georgian. That means to you the victory. It's set at the KP table, sometimes called the Supra table in Georgia. That's our pod for today. Watar, why are we talking about rabbits? Is produced by Andrew Schwark and Daniel Patterns. And our pod is brought to you by the creators of First Things Foundation, a nonprofit that lives and works in some of the world's most impoverished places, immersing in order to create momentum for local change makers and for their praiseworthy ends. Share Watar with a friend. Hit us up with a solid review on iTunes and really just check out wherever you go to get your podcast. You can find us and write cool stuff. Your love for us allows us to love and serve others. Nakfamdis, hasta luego, kambufo, and peace out.